WWE star Mick Mankind Foley suggested in his autobiography that the Little Earthquake song Winter moves him like no other song and that he played it to hype himself up while preparing for a barbed wire match in Japan. Hello, 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 and welcome everyone to this week's episode of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends and musicians listen to albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die, do some deep dives on individual tracks, give our never jackass opinions on the artist and the work that they never. have put forward. And at the end, vote and tell you whether or not you really do need to hear this before you die. Very excited to do this episode this week. We have been listening to Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes. Just before we get all the way into the show and start digging into that mailbag and doing all the other fun stuff you've come to love, we are going to listen to a little snippet of the opening track off of the 1992 release Little Earthquakes called Crucify. Already, already, already. So that is what we have been listening to this week. We're going to go around the room and give our tweet-length reviews of the album. But first, I'm going to pass the mic over to Rob, and he is going to reach his hand into that mailbag. Thanks, Thomas. Here with another edition of the old mailbag. Going to dive into this email inbox. We'd love for you to write us your thoughts and corrections. We're here to learn and to take any yelling you want to throw in our direction. (laughs) But these are these are nice ones. So first here we have Gareth from St. Paul writes, Great podcast, guys. I really enjoy listening to y'all just play off each other. And I always learn something. I was super excited to hear your Credence episode. That was a couple weeks ago. We did Cosmos Factory, Credence Clearwater Revival. I was super excited to hear the Credence episode when you guys fawned over John Fogarty as a vocalist. I feel like... <laughs> I feel like he often gets kind of glossed over as dad rock or something, but the dude has chops. And he does. Yeah. Thanks again. Looking forward to many more. Trying to cover a couple of Creedence songs in my life have made me realize that he has a range that is definitely underappreciated. That man belts like a son of a bitch. Serious belt. It's impressive. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. And one more here. This is Henry from Charlotte writes, great job on these podcasts. I'm a weekly listener. Point of order on the Aretha Franklin episode, though. 
Oh, man. That was mine. Here we go. Let's see the mus- what I get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the musicians that backed her in Fame Studios were not the Wrecking Crew. Oh. The Wrecking Crew was a revolving set of musicians based in California that included Carol Kay, Hal Blaine, Tommy Tedesco, and others. They were responsible for hundreds of backing tracks from Sinatra to the Beach Boys, but not Aretha. Ah. Instead, it's the Muscle Shoals rhythm section known as the Swampers. Ah. <laughs> so I, I somehow interchanged those those concepts because there's two documentaries out there, and I think maybe I crossed my own tracks. Thank you for the clarification. That's great. Yes, thanks. Thanks for writing in, Henry. We appreciate it. Yeah, there's there's another, there's another band called the Funk Brothers too, right? Where were they based? Detroit? Maybe. Not that sure. That sounds like a Detroit thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's go with Detroit. Anyway, we love Somebody to learn. Somebody will correct you next week. <laughs> of course. We lo- listen, ha- please, bring it in. Bring, bring it. it in. Yes. Bring it in. We, we read every every missive you send our way. We love hearing from you. The email address is 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. I'm sure we're going to screw plenty up here in this episode and announce ourselves to be retrogressive, toxically masculine apes. <laughs> So get those get those email get those electronic pens ready and and send something off. All right, thank you, thank you, Rob, and thank you to everyone for writing in. Really, really appreciate it. As we said, we've been listening to "Little Earthquakes" by Tori Amos, released on January sixth of nineteen ninety two. I am really curious to hear from you guys what you thought of this album. So I'm going to throw it around the room for the tweet length review. I'm going to go first to Rob. Hey, this is Rob here. In my tweet length review, I wrote, Tori Amos's solo debut has lots of raw emotion, swells of classical piano, and soaring harmonies. It also has some truly bizarre electric guitar cues and some seriously cringy lyrics. In short, I think I found the one upside to never having had a girlfriend in high school. Ooh, there we go. Being forced to pretend that you like this. All right, let's throw it over to Adam. Hey, everybody, this is Adam. Uh, I was going to compare the lyrics of this album to Jonah Hill's slam poetry outburst in the movie 22 (laughs) Jump Street, but that would be unfair to Jonah Hill. Oh, (laughs) come on. Ouch. All right, everybody, this is Tom. My tweet-length review for Little Earthquakes. Uh, Little Earthquakes showcases an undeniable musical talent from an artist trying to figure out where she fits in the musical landscape. During my listens, I vacillated between bored and ludicrously sad. I can't say that I enjoyed my week, but at least I have a new frontrunner for least appropriate album to be covered by the band My Dick. (laughs) As I was listening to it, I was definitely like, why do I crucify my dick? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's talk a little bit about the artist Mary Ellen Amos. Goes professionally by Tori Amos, but born Mary Ellen Amos August 22nd of 1963. 
apparently she took on the name Tori when somebody told her that she looked like a Tori pine. And she's like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I'll go by Tori. I looked at a picture Wait, in, of a Tori pine. As in pine, the tree? As in the tree. Which oh, is like, okay. I was picturing like, oh, a Tory Pine, tall, willowy. It's like scrub brush. <laughs> Somebody told her that she looks like scrub brush. <laughs> you look like it. No. Yeah, I was like, I, I don't think that that's the compliment that you thought it was, but okay. Yeah, we'll take Run it. Run with it. Yeah. yeah. I want to cover this right away. Tori Amos is a certified freak. She is actually <laughs> a legitimate freak. Uh, and I mean this in the most positive way possible. She was born the youngest of three, uh, had two older siblings who were taking piano lessons. And apparently at the age of two, she was able to walk into the room after her siblings' piano lessons and just play back what they had done in their lesson. Sight unseen, having just heard it. Absolute insane musical freak inborn in her um at the age of three she was writing her own compositions she apparently has chromesthesia which is a form of synesthesia where you picture music as colors and movement and she has she described- said something about like light towers yes. or something yeah, yeah 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 like she pictures music as light structures right apparently it was just the kind of person that, from a very early age, her parents were like, oh, well, this is just what you're going to do with your life. At the age of five, she was admitted to the Peabody Institute, which is a music conservatory school of John Hopkins University. She's the youngest person ever uh, admitted there at the age of five, which I was like, holy shit, that's crazy. But then yeah, I, that's how you know it's not bullshit. Well, then I looked it up, the though. Wikipedia stuff. Or, oh, I looked right, it up, and they're like, <laughs> it's actually for six to 18-year-olds. So she was admitted <laughs> a year early. It's not like it was for 18-year-olds <laughs> and on, but so. <laughs> You know, you're like, oh, my God, the age of five. She got in a year early. But either way, it's still impressive. She apparently is still the youngest person that was ever um, admitted to that school. Thank you for the context, because in my head, I was picturing like a Doogie Howser thing where she walks in at five years old with a bunch of like 25 year old like orchestra musicians. And they're like, who's this? And she comes in and crushes it. Yeah. Apparently, going back to her sort of just natural inborn talent, though, she can't sight read music um, and has never really engaged in the process of learning. Like she knows how to read music, but you can't just put like a, a piece in front of her and she can play it. And that was a point of contention with her at school. It sounds like she was pretty bitchy and contentious at school. She got thrown out at the age of 11, um, lost her scholarship and they asked her to leave um, the program. Jeez. She claims it was because she was into rock and roll music, but and also, you know, it's like she was resistant to the instruction that they were giving her. And uh, so they basically said, hey, we don't think that this is for you. You're clearly good and you're going to be a good musician. But like we are like a classical conservatory type of school. And that's probably not the path that you're going to take, um, which, you know, makes sense. She was clearly interested in doing rock music, doing other kinds of stuff at the age of 13. She was performing in the, like, you know, D.C., Maryland area, which is where she lived. And her dad, who was a Methodist minister, by the way, he was a pastor of a Methodist church, was taking her to piano bars and gay bars to perform at the age of 13, which good on you, dad, uh, for, you know, number one, not being a bigot and saying, like, I don't like gay people, but also, you know, really helping your daughter's musical career. Hold on. Is it though? Is it good on you? <laughs> I think it is good on you. We're You're talking taking about your like kid to a nightclub to work though to like perform. You know, she wanted to do it. He I apparently think it's debatable at least. That's all I'm saying. 
Fair enough. He has always been very supportive of her music career. That's actually how she got her first record contract. Her dad was the guy who was sending out her demo tapes to a bunch of different people. And eventually one got to Atlantic Records. And that is how she ended up getting signed to a record deal. Please, please uh, not only say, but spell the name of her first band, Tom. Oh, my God. (laughs) Fairly egregious. We're getting there, Rob. We're getting there, okay? (laughs) So she gets signed to a six-record deal with Atlantic. With six-record deal on on the strength of demo tapes. That's a lot of records. That is crazy. Right? Okay. That sounds like a lot of commitment. How old was she at this point? 17 years old, signs a six-record deal with Atlantic. Because she's a prodigy. And and this would have been approximately what year then? So at age seven, this is like 1980 that she signed that deal. That's pretty intense. Now, she then, basically, here's the thing that I I find to be kind of crazy. All right? She gets a deal at the age 17 with Atlantic Records. 19... She moves to Los Angeles to pursue music professionally. Has not released an album. Two more years go by. She forms the band Why Can't Tori Reed, spelled the letter Y K A N T T O R I Reed. Why Can't Tori Reed, which is a reference to her inability to read sheet music. And people would always say that in her school. Like, why can't Tori read sheet music? She's a freaking phenomenon, but she can't read sheet music. And a, a big part of that, like, I think that she thinks of that as kind of a badge of honor as an adult i look at that as like you just didn't want to put in the work to learn that thing that they were trying to do which would have objectively been good for you to be able to do but did you guys listen to any of why can't Tori oh, I sh- oh i sure did let's let's drop in the opening track off of why can't Tori read which was but actually before we drop in the opening track again i just want to get to this like insane level of latitude that they gave her here because she gets signed in 1980 two years later moves to los angeles she's there for two years before she forms a band and that band doesn't put out an album for another two years so it's 1988 by the time she releases the first album of her six record deal which, who the fuck signs somebody and then lets them go eight years without releasing an album? Is Atlantic just sending her I checks? I, they'd probably send her like one check. And they were like, can we just get some, <laughs> yeah. make it make this last yeah. eight years? This is the heyday of the music industry. There was just cocaine and money coming everywhere. <laughs> yes, seriously. <laughs> yeah. though. All right, so we are going to now play the opening track off of Why Can't Tori Read, which is called... Give me one second here. It's called The Big Picture. Someone smashed my window, broke into my brand new car last night. Caught my boyfriend looking at another slender pair of eyes. Gotta make more money, gotta get, gotta get the faster than the rest. I'm listening to it now, and it sounds like a Madonna tribute band. <laughs> it sounds so fucking bizarre. I don't understand <laughs> why she thought that this like weird synth pop sound was what was going to be her the best showcase for abilities. Well, 88, so it's running in line with what was popular at the time, but you're right, by no means is that 
what we'll eventually see out of her prodigiousness. Well, is so that that's a word? The, yeah, it is interesting because I was thinking now. Now you've given us the context; it's made me rethink it. Because I had thought, oh, she's trying to find a way to make it. She's trying to fit into the box they want her to be in. You know, it's a fairly common story, and that's what was popular at the time. And big hair and hairspray and the whole deal, but. You just recast it as, well, they just handed her a check, and then she had like four years to think about it. It seemed like they wanted her to do exactly <laughs> what she wanted to do. That's what it seems like. Yeah, it, it, I know. and it, But they came out with this album, which is somewhat inexplicable to me. And it also sounded like the recording process for this album was somewhat contentious and took a long time and overwrought, which ends up being a little bit of a theme in her career. She is uh, kind of perennially late with the albums that she is owed by her contract. She also, like, I was listening to an interview with her. She had an entire album that was set to be released in 2021 that she just said, no, I'm not going to release it. It's, no, this is never going to see the light of day. I'm done with it. I'm going to make another album instead. Like, very much a laborious writing process. Now, I do have to add a piece of context here, which you cannot talk about Tori Amos without talking about this, which is that, listen, she moves to Los Angeles at 19, and then okay. six years later puts out Why Can't Tori Read? Well, at 22, she was raped. Maybe that got her a little bit of latitude in the time span between when her album was due. And she's like, maybe I'm going through some shit right now and I don't exactly have an album. I'm not exactly ready to go into the studio right now and start fucking putting out some some songs. Yeah, that takes probably a lifetime to process, not, not just a couple of years, right? Sure. Right. The album that she would ultimately release after that event was the Why Can't Tori Read or this album that Tori we're listening Reed. to? Was the, yes. Came really? After that, yes. Wow. Okay. Okay. I kind of get the impression from what I was able to find out about the making of that album that that was much more... Uh, Rob, you talked about like they gave her money and just said, do what you want. She has now in in uh, her telling of it now says that there was a lot of record company interference with that album and they did have an idea of like maybe they just got tired of waiting and they're like just put out a fucking pop album like we just want you to sell records put out a fucking pop album and yeah because on 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 scan it just doesn't the main thing that's surprising about it is not that it's of its time it's that it doesn't seem to showcase her piano chops at all no not in any way shape or form she is a Again, she's a freak. She's a fantastic piano player. Yeah. And a good composer, too. And they strip out almost all natural organic piano sounds, which is one of the things that Little Earthquake really benefits from, is it has this organic, natural piano bed that kind of covers everything. Oh, yeah. And it really sounds fantastic. Really great. It really makes you feel like you're in the room with a piano because of those those volume swells. And she uses the, I want to say she uses the whole instrument because she's definitely on both ends of the keyboard, but it's also that... The dyna- Her dynamics. The, right. Exactly. The dynamic right. range of the piano was impressive to me. And it made me realize that you don't hear that a lot, on maybe on some jazz records, but it's not it's not as common as you'd think it would be given that the piano is such a dynamic instrument. Yeah, when you're in the very room, nuanced. When, yeah. Like when you're in the room with a piano and somebody's wailing on it, like you feel it. 
it is a, it's a visceral experience. And I got some of that, especially you put on the really good headphones and turn it up and, and do that very close listen to it. And you can, you can really get that sense of the scale of a piano. Like piano is a big instrument. <laughs> My dad used to tune pianos as kind of a side gig. And so to get gear for the, that business, he would go to a local music store, a local piano store. And they had a grand piano, not just like your standard, but they had the full, like, I think it's 12 or 13 foot long concert grand. And we would go in there and I'd be, and I'd ask him like, can I go hit like the lowest note? And you'd hit it. And you're right. It is a physical, like it shakes the room. It's almost like a subwoofer. It's really cool. Yeah. It's, it's a, well, you know, we're, we're transitioning to the talk about Little Earthquakes, which is her debut album as Tori Amos, just as for, I, for Why Can't Tori Read, she, I, she did write all of that. That was still an album that was her, but mm. from her standpoint, it was much more like uh, she was shepherded in a direction. This one was a little bit more um, at her own sort of, uh, you know, she had a lot more agency in it. Not quite as much as you would think, though. Um, so she was due to release an album in 1990 as part of her six-record deal. And like, you owe us an album in 1990. Let's go. And so in December of 1990, she comes to them with 10 songs and says, this is my album. And Atlanta Records said, no, that is not your album. We are not going to release that. You have to go back to the drawing board. And some of the songs that she ended up releasing on Little Earthquakes were part of that package of songs that she put together, um, but she didn't have to go back and rework a lot of them. She worked with a couple of different producers. One of them was Ian Stanley from Tears for Fears, who uh, ended up, they say that he worked on uh, Me and a Gun, but I mean, that's just her voice in a room, so I think it's like recorded by him. Um, and also the song China, um, he worked with her on that. I think he has a writing credit on that as well. They went back and they ended up reworking some of these songs and the record company, by all accounts, weren't like, oh yeah, this is amazing. They were kind of like, I guess we're going to release this fucking album. Like, <laughs> and uh, ends well, up- it's here, so yeah. might as well. So January of 1992, it's released in the UK, released in February of 1992 in the US, and it is the album Little Earthquakes. When it was released, can you guys guess- what the number one song in America was on January 6th of 1992. I want to hear guesses from you guys. Not January of 92. January 6th, 1992. Number one song in America. It's not Smells Like Teen Spirit? It's not Smells Like Teen Spirit. Was that Millie Vanilli territory? It was Black or White by Michael Jackson. Wow. Off of the album Dangerous. Yeah. I mean, talk about a man just with hits spanning fucking decades. Jesus Christ, right. Michael Jackson. Let somebody else get number one every once in a while. So a very different sound than what she just, put out. Just a little bit. Yeah. Because my God, I love that Dangerous album. But you're right. You couldn't you couldn't get any further away from that sound than what we hear on this album. Yeah. She has said in interviews that it took her a while to reconcile with the fact that she was never going to be a top 40 songwriter and i think you hear that on this album i think you hear her trying to put out some top 40 songs on this album one or two and i think that might have been a little bit more like prodding from the record company like we don't hear a hit type of thing but most of these songs are definitely not packaged for radio consumption and just casual listening but but contextually did she kind of kick off the 
what I'll oversimplify as the Lilith Fair strand of music. You know, is she kind of first in that lineage of the Sarah McLaughlins and Paula Coles and stuff like that? You know, it's actually funny is that uh, I, I one of the songs on this uh, on this album, the, my biggest diss was it sounds like a Paula Cole song. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that was a good thing for the world. I just, you know. Fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. You know, I don't think Sarah McLaughlin had a big hit until mid to late 90s. Mid to late 90s. Yeah. yeah. So maybe she was. Maybe she was the originator of that sort of like, you know, coffee shop, super sad and depressed yeah, female songwriter. But super lyrical. Yeah. Like that's that's one of the things that I took away from this album was just how many words there are. Like it's silly. I just out of curiosity for comparison, because we, I couldn't find uh, the full lyrics for "Octung Baby," but I went and I just found Joshua Tree, which runs fifty-one minutes, eighteen hundred words. This album is fifty-seven minutes, thirty-four hundred words. <laughs> She's got stuff to say. So many lyrics. I'm gonna need a full analysis in the spreadsheet, a word count for every album we've done so far. <laughs> I'm going to need a graph. <laughs> it just seemed like this would be up there with like a rap album because they're just constantly s- saying things. And I feel like yeah. the, she d- she doesn't have a lot of choruses that repeat. It's mm-hmm. just... And, and I was thinking, to her credit, how do you do this stuff live? Because these are just massive songs, lyrically, to try to remember. I mean, I guess when you write it, you know, it sure. sticks in your head. But there was one thing that I... I was was simultaneously something that annoyed me, but also I can appreciate. Well, one thing I will say is that it probably is easier to remember the lyrics when they are deeply meaningful and personal to you. Yeah. And I get a lot of that off this album. This is a meaningful album to Tori Amos. This, these songs mean a lot to her. And honestly meant a lot to a lot of people. So this album was very, was reviewed very favorably. Surprise, surprise. The critics liked it. I'm not shocked by that in one bit. But it ended up peaking at 14 on the UK charts. I think it peaked at 53 on the US charts, but it stayed on the charts for 38 weeks. And so it was one of those like, not a kind of a bit more of a slow burn. It released and people liked it, but it was a lot of word of mouth. Like, what are you listening to? Oh, you got to listen to this um, type of uh, growth in its listener base. And it ended up going two times platinum in the US. Wow. Kind of crazy for yeah. this album. You listen to this album, you're like, there. I guess there were two million really depressed teenage girls and or teenage boys that wanted to get with the press teenage girls that really liked this album <laughs> that really feigned interest in this well i i do but to my little affair kind of comment i think I, I could be proven wrong but i think it was coming at a time when there might have been a little bit of a drought in female songwriter type stuff i mean we're coming off of 80s hair metal sure yeah we had madonna but beyond that like who else were the Madonna's party music, you know. There's no like again. It's not. There's no sad girl music. Um, this is this is you know like Bell and Sebastian was yet to come out. Uh, mm-hmm. Alanis Morissette hadn't come in with the sort of edgy uh, female sound yet. Sure. Um, I mean, of course, I'm going to bring up the Indigo Girls because uh, I love them. So they were around from the mid '80s okay. onward. So they they were there, but they were. No, I, th- I think they're probably comparable to that 
very uh, lyrically oriented. You know. Okay, but when was their when was closer to fine? Like when was their breakthrough? Oh, that you're right. That was probably ninety three, maybe. Do you wonder if Tori Amos paved the way for that? Yeah, maybe um, she kicked open the door for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah, ninety four. Ninety four was was, okay. was when. Yeah, damn. All right. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that. Listen, general impressions on this album. It's really really good when it's really really dramatic when she builds up the drama through the music not through the lyrics through the music when she builds up the drama that is when this album is at its best and we're i want to drop in a clip right now we're not going to do a deep dive on the song but this was the first single released off of this album which got a lot of attention um, this is the song, Me and a Gun. 5 a.m. Friday morning, Thursday night, far from sleep. I'm still up and driving, can't go home, obviously. So I'll just change direction. Cause they'll soon know where I live And I wanna live Got a full tank and some chips Was me and a gun And a man on my back And I sang holy holy as he buttoned down his pants. Now, you have an artist who is a just stone-cold killer piano player. And what is the first single that you release off of her album is just her and her voice in a room singing nakedly. It's powerful. It's like, you guys remember the Sinead O'Connor performance of War on Saturday Night Live where she ripped up the picture of Pope John Paul II and stuff like that? Like, that was powerful. That is just, that's a woman out there singing something that clearly has a deep and personal message to her, even though that was a cover for Sinead O'Connor, obviously. This is the song about her being sexually assaulted. It is... It's stark. It was a bold choice. I I give it to her, and I I kind of give her. And nobody credit. knows who you are, nobody so you're, you're you coming are. out yeah. of the gate with your single is just you acapella. Is just that's ballsy. That's really, yeah. that's cool. It is, and yeah, in, in terms of general impressions, I mean, I I get that impression that this is about female empowerment. It feels a lot like a middle finger to the patriarchy, dare I say. Sorry, I sound a little silly saying that. But I, I, I got that impression. I got that vibe from what she was doing. And so I understand a little bit of how people, a lot of women, especially young women, could take a cue from that and feel really empowered and feel like really excited by that. Yeah, I, I, I would say that on this album, she makes a lot of bold choices. Bold choices, by definition, are either going to be home runs or strikeouts and there are definitely some strikeouts but i feel like there's some home runs she she has a way of not just taking the middle the middle road and you know as you've said rob many times uh not a lot of these songs um elicit apathy from me there's one or two that i'm pretty apathetic about i'm like ah this just is a miss but most of them get me to feel something well there's a couple where i wasn't even sure the track had changed <laughs> Yes, <laughs> yeah, that is true. 
I mean, it's she's got her thing. She has a thing that is, I am Tori Amos, and this is my thing, which again is a bold choice. It's she's trying to define herself and her sound, and yeah, sometimes that ends up being a little samey, um, but sometimes that ends up being pretty genius and pretty great. I found that from an emotional standpoint that I I didn't it didn't hit me from an emotional side because I feel like she. Emotions come to me either through really well-written lines or really well-delivered lines. And so some of the lyrics about a cat named Easter, like that that went over my head. But there are some spots on here where her delivery is really well done. There are other times where it's just, you know, ho-hum. Yeah, I could really picture Confucius doing the crossword puzzle with a pen. <laughs> Yeah, and Buddha I love and Judy that Garland line. and stuff. Yeah, listen, some I of them were the some line. of them were silly. Yes, <laughs> but um, Adam, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you on this one. There is at least one song in particular that I think has very well written lines that are delivered in a way that just kills me. And I was like sad after listening to the song. Every time I was just sad. It got is to the it point winter. Where it, it is winter. That song is so yes. Amazing. Okay, I'll, I'll give the because I, I, I was looking through my notes here and I, I have the same thing. <laughs> that song is so good. It's um, really good. Yeah. One thing that comes through on this album is that Tori Amos is she seems really intense, like a very intense person. Like I don't think that Tori Amos and I could sit around and have a glass of wine and like be cool. <laughs> that being said, I did watch. I watched an interview with her from this year. And she's like actually pretty soft spoken and like super chill, which I was not expecting at all. But she's also in her late fifties. Like I'm sure she's mellowed out in her lifetime. But yeah, and also has had a lot of plastic surgery, right? I know we're not supposed to talk about that, but that's kind of a tell for something, right? I think she's had the fillers put in. You know, like it's not it's not I, insanity, but you know, it feels kind of significant. And just to give equal treatment to the other side, I wanted to mention that I I watched the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony last weekend, the the most recent one, and I saw our buddy John Fogarty there, and he's just rocking jet black hair. It's like seventy five. <laughs> Like, no one's going to notice. Yeah, <laughs> like, I've been drinking and drugging and rock and rolling since I was 19, but my hair is all good. No, it's totally cool. Yeah, yeah. No consequences for my body at all. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. There was a, an interesting anecdote, um, actually, from that interview, talking about, like, her overall intensity. She talked about how, like, when she was nine years old, she was a huge Maryland Terrapins basketball fan because they lived in the area. And she said that like on a weekly basis, she would write letters to the basketball coach critiquing his performance in the last <laughs> week and being like, you should never set foot on the court again. You suck. I hope they fire you. And her mom eventually had to be like, "You, said, I can't let you watch basketball anymore like you can't you can't it's engage in this life. in a fun way like you're doing everything to the nth degree just calm down like very intense yeah. very intense one other thing that i will say for somebody who is as fantastic of a piano player as she is i don't know if you've seen her like play and sing live it's fucking great she's flawless yeah man she seems like she does not think about either one of those things or she's putting all of her thought into both of those things maybe like all of her thought into her hands and all of her thought into her voice for somebody who's as good of a piano player she's got a great voice she really does have a fantastic voice she's a mezzo soprano and 
I think that there's a lot of beauty and she's got a lot of control. And yep. I, I appreciated that on a lot of these songs. I, I assumed the control was going to come up, especially with Adam on the podcast, because her ability to go from throat voice to falsetto, it's almost Joni Mitchell-esque. Like, she really sounds like a bird in a good way. Yeah, yeah. And, and we'll di- dive into that in the song Winter, because I, yes. I had some notes specifically on that song with with how she transitions from chest to head to falsetto and her mic placement to I'll pump the brakes. Very, very good. Well, but the one critique that I will have of her voice, she has lead singer voice. She does not have backup singer voice. And she can harmonize with herself very well. But when she tries to do like just a straight backup part, it sounds so like cut through and powerful. It sounds like she's singing like a lead singer. She's not singing like a backup singer. And oh, that's I don't know if she has it in her to not be that sort of bright out front voice. Like we've talked about this before. Rob's got lead singer voice. I have backup singer voice. If Rob and I, if I'm lead singer on a song and Rob sings a backup, as soon as Rob starts singing, that's all you hear. It's just Rob. <laughs> if Rob and I are doing backup vocals together, he has to stand like four feet behind me off the mic so that his voice doesn't drown mine out. But it's, it's not, it's partially about volume and projection. I, I agree. I project, you know, I put out more volume than you, but it's also about, Timbre. Yeah, it's a timbre so I, thing. Yeah. So it, it is an interesting thing. And, and some of these are stylistic choices. Take, for example, I happen to have also been listening to quite a bit of early Beatles recordings over the weekend. I was with my father and listening to like Beatles radio and they're playing a bunch of the old stuff. John and Paul sing harmony together and they both have lead singer voice at the same time. And that's their sound, you know, for sure. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. And they mix it dead on with each other like you know they're there's not like they're not trying to bury one in the back like she can't be buried in the back exactly and that's and that's ultimately the choice then you have to make in the mix and uh, i noticed the everly brothers who the beatles were hugely influenced by are kind of similar anyway i agree with what you're saying but i think i'm trying to think of a singer who can deftly switch between those two there must they must exist certainly we go back to the Bjork episode, the comment that Phil made about how Bjork is really good at singing a duet with herself. Well, a big part of that is because Bjork also has lead singer voice for all of her different versions of Bjork voice. And so it works as a duet and not as a like, I wouldn't call somebody singing a lead line and me singing like a clearly backup part as a duet, you know, like you have to almost mix it and make that choice to bring them to the forefront where they're rivaling each other for it to be a duet. And again, you know, I, you know, I, I've always been self-conscious about how easily my voice is buried in mixes, but there's a time and a place for that. Like that fits in a lot of situations to not try to rival what's going on with the lead. Let's jump into the first track on the album. We played a little bit of it earlier, but we are going to dive more into the song Crucify. For you, I crucify myself. 
Adam, give it to me. What do you got? There is no snare <laughs> and no cymbal crashes on this entire song. Yeah. Well, they all the ones, all the hits are on the floor, Tom. Which I thought was a really cool. It was a cool uh, a flavor thing there. So I noticed they didn't give a credit to a drummer. They gave a credit to a percussionist on this song. Ah, like, he's not a drummer. Yep. He's a percussionist. I'm but so they glad. sound great. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned it because my first note on the very first list was that that snare is so aggressive. But then I realized it wasn't a snare drum. <laughs> but, you know, here's here's a compliment generally or for the songs that work on this record is I think they do a... For someone who's such a piano phenom, they weave in the whole band into the arrangements, in and out, very, very well, I think. And I think this is a good example. Like, for instance, the guitar kind of covers the verse, and there's no piano in the verse. I think I just thought that was a really interesting choice. So you get you get some of this instrumental variation in the tracks, and my ears really appreciate it. And this is tr- this is the opening track on the album, right? Yes. And probably yeah, the okay. actual hit, I think of this as maybe the hit. Or the song okay. she's known for? No, or there was a video or something? Um, no, this was definitely um, her... This was the, I think, the second single off the album. Uh, actually, no, this was the fifth single off of this album. Uh. Good Lord. The fifth single off this album. It went Me and a Gun, released before the album. Silent All These Years, released before the album. China, released right after the album was released. Then Winter, and then Crucify. Um, which I do not agree with that release yeah. schedule at all. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, yeah, this is the one that felt familiar to my ears, having not heard this when we were younger, but just being you know an MTV watcher. This felt, this was the one that felt familiar to me. Yeah, I when I was listening to this song, I gotta I gotta be honest. My first impression was like jesus christ this is some whiny teenage bullshit are you fucking kidding me with this melodrama and then i had to check myself and i went back and i listened to some smashing pumpkin songs which i love the smashing pumpkins and i was like oh that was sad teenage boy music this is sad teenage girl music it's all the fucking same louder guitars After yeah. that, it helped me really come around to how kind of beautifully arranged this song was and impeccably produced. I think the production on this album generally is really good. I think there's some real whiffs, but I, in general, I would say yes. I think they make some good production decisions. Has that variation, like I mentioned, but there are some whiffs that we're going to get to. Oh, no. Bold choices. Bold choices lead to stark results, right? <laughs> Actually, my biggest complaint is a very milquetoast choice, I think. But we'll see when we get there. Okay, okay, okay. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, Adam, what do, you, what do you have to say about this? Did I already throw this to you? I, I forget who I threw it you to. You did, but originally. it's fine. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll chime in a little bit more. Um, the She changes the key in the pre-chorus, which is a cool... It's a cool thing to do because the pre-chorus and the chorus are all in the same key, and you kind of settle in to the key that it's in. So when it goes back to the verse it snaps you into a new key and you kind of like shake your head and go, what, what just happened there? So it's a, a very cool structure from a songwriting standpoint. Well, and talk uh, about, by the way, talk about how intelligently done that is to go back to Rob's point about how the guitar rules the verse and then the piano comes in for the pre-chorus and the chorus. It's this jump from instrument to another instrument and then that oh, instrument's in another key and you're like, oh, yeah. wow, this is really like catching me here. Yeah, that's cool. Also, my my favorite part of the entire song is at the 415 
mark where the backups come in with that high pitch. Why do we? And it's her like layered five times. And it's it's it has some kind of effect on it, but it's it's really well placed, and uh, yeah, that's my favorite part of the song. Oddly enough, my least favorite part of the song. Oh, really? Yeah, oh I, man, that was that's the genesis of my like. She can't do backup. She well can't do backups. Yeah, every right. one of them seems like it's vying to be the most out front version of herself. Yeah, um, I can hear that. That high note should have been buried more, and maybe it was a production choice that you liked clearly. But I, I view it more as like uh, you just can't bury a note that's hit like that. Right. Um, my favorite part of the song, if not not my favorite part of the song, a part that I came to appreciate a whole lot is the mandolin that's like left panned in the song. It's really good. It's just like there's this consistent bed of a bunch of different shit happening in all of these songs when they're at their best that you kind of don't even realize that they're in there. But if there was to be taken out, there would feel like there was a little gap in it. Yeah. It's doing that little arpeggio on there. Yeah. Doodle daddy, doodle daddy, doodle daddy. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. It's one of the things to speak generally that the album grew on me over the week. I started out with a real, Oh no, I can't believe I have to listen to this 10 times. Oh yeah. But I really, I think for, that reason you just described that the production actually is quite layered more than first pass might might suggest or i don't know if someone was just giving you a headline of who this artist is that you might expect so you know i was able to discover a lot of extra things while getting more and more acquainted with the melodies i wonder if this might be one of those examples of record company interference leading to a good thing where there is a definite version of this album that is straight ahead that I hate, <laughs> that is just boring <laughs> and not good and doesn't have all these cool, really thoughtful touches put on some of these songs. And I wonder if the record company heard the demos and was like, no, this is not. And like, maybe she brought them and was like, these are the finished product. And like, these are fucking demos. Go back and work them. You <laughs> need add more, some more ingredients. <laughs> because again, without, layer two three and four deep on this song this would be pretty straightforward and kind of ho-hum so another question though because this is early 1992 kind of late 1991 would be never mind coming out do you think they finalized decisions like that i it's an oversimplification but i always think about never mind the nirvana album as being a line in the sand of history of things things that change maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't so maybe Maybe that just was meaningful to people our age, and and I don't know, but but do you think they were do you think they were thinking about grunge? That's the question. Funny that you say that. The B side for the single release of this song, Crucify, was a cover of "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Mm. So they clearly what? were thinking about grunge. Like it, they were not immune to grunge's influence on. Yeah. The, she was not immune to grunge's influence on uh, on the world. Interesting. And one thing I'm going to say about this song, and I'm going to say it a couple more times, too damn long. A lot of these songs are too long. They're about 45 to 115 seconds too long, right? Like, 
a lot of this album's 57 down. minutes yeah and this style Whoa. and i felt it yeah, yeah. For, and it might maybe it's just a genre thing or maybe it's just our i, I feel like it's it's safe to say on, on regardless of the genre that when you get over 50 minutes you're pushing it and 57 it starts to you definitely start feeling it so i i, yeah. I dig that this album felt oppressive at the end of it like from a beginning to end listen it felt oppressive towards the end all right let's move on to the next song on our focus list which is the song precious things Okay, so that was Precious Things, and I'm going to throw it over to Rob. So, I checked. Van Halen's Right Now came out in 1991. <laughs> How did I not hear that? Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, no, it's a, it's kind of a fail for me. <laughs> I couldn't get that. I, I hate that song. It song's terrible. So, I, I couldn't get that out of my head when I was listening to this one. Listen, I I like this song with the exception of... The, these precious things. If you cut out just that, I like the song. But that's the chorus. That's like the bedrock of the song. <laughs> I had the same thing. Is that the the? So I I thought the piano line because I didn't associate it with the Van Halen <laughs> right now, and my mind is blown as you said that. I I thought the piano intro was was cool. There the the percussion in the intro is actually a breath noises <laughs> and it's like sampled or something so that that's pretty cool but tom the chorus sucks of course like it bad. doesn't it just doesn't do anything actually i realize what it does it's not only takes me to the van halen song which i don't care for but it really what it takes me to is the old saturday night live commercial parody for crystal gravy they were, they were making fun of crystal pepsi <laughs> And they were playing like a sound alike <laughs> of right now. Rob, I thought I'll just you... say it right now. If we can drop that in, if we can find it, we'll drop that in here. Okay. Earth wasn't created in seven days. There are some things man will never improve on. Don't take what you're given. Why can't we be cleaner? We're hungry for something different. Mm. 
Rob, I thought you would appreciate that on this song, they specifically call out a man named Jake Freeze as his credit is Rat Pedal, track four. (laughs) (laughs) Like he just stepped on the pedal? He's playing the rat. (laughs) That's all you you need to do with that one, Adam. Yeah. Makes plenty (laughs) of noise on its own, believe (laughs) me. He brought it, and so he gets a credit. I was I, when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, I can't believe Phil's not in this episode." It's the rat. It's the pet, like the pedal. Okay. Oh, in all yeah. seriousness, if you have your amp turned on and you just press that pedal, and you're just at a normal volume before you press that pedal, it's like opening up the Ghostbusters trap or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Adam, I agree with you. I like the piano motif that she does. And I think that this is part of her classical training. There are a lot of songs that start with a motif that is carried through the entire song and it sort of forms, it informs a lot of the decisions that are made quarterly and melodically throughout the song is informed by that opening motif. Um, This one, I I thought it was a strong motif. Rob, I did not get the um, right now, or if you can believe it, the Crystal Gravy (laughs) (laughs) reference that didn't jump out to me. Um, And so I thought it was really cool. Now, again, I I like this song with the exception of the chorus. The chorus sucks really fat ones. But that passage starts right at like two minutes and 30 seconds where they kind of do that sort of like breakdown and then it's kind of got that like super cool build up it's great and then it kills me because the build up is into the chorus and it just builds into this like this great build and you're like yeah this is so cool and epic and then it drops into the chorus you're like oh we're here again come on guys (laughs) very anticlimactic very anticlimactic the very end of the song it's like she's doing the chorus for the last time she might be super chorusing it she breaks away from that these precious things and she kind of just says like these precious things and it's so much better i'm like oh if you just done that the entire song it would have been pretty good (laughs) but no you had to make it way over complicated and have you know, fucking Count Dracula on backup vocals <laughs> with you there. When the outro vamp beats the chorus, <laughs> yeah. that's not a great yep. sign. Yep. <laughs> uh, righty. Uh, man, we're actually going kind of long on Tori Amos here. Let's, uh, let's jump over to the next song on our list here, which is the song Winter. I run off where the drifts get deeper Sleeping beauty that trips me with a frown I hear a voice you must learn to stand up for yourself Cause I can't always be around He says when you gonna make up your
good news, guys. We all came together on this one. I thought this was the best song. This song's so good. <laughs> I'd never heard it before, to my knowledge. And yeah, yeah, it's the most affecting. I think I had the best chorus, like a really nice resolve in the chorus. The singing dynamics match the piano dynamics. They're both on display here. And yeah, lyrically, it was powerful. I guessed that it was about a dad talking to his daughter, which is relevant to both of you, at least. So yeah, it's cool. I loved this song. This song killed me every time. Like my literally my first note on this is fuck this song is good. <laughs> that chorus line and I know that yes, I, I I interpreted it the same way that you did, Rob, dad talking to the daughter, but I also personalize everything and it really again talking about like I regret my life decisions that when you're going to love me is when you're going to love you as much as I do line dude oh that got me yeah I was like why don't I like, love myself more why aren't I better to myself I'm not deserving of the love that I get from other people it's like honestly like I the there was a time Rob when we were down in Charleston and you were working and I was listening to this album on the TV in the other room like I literally cried I was like, man, I, I was missing my family. And I was just like, oh, man, like, I'm so sad. Why aren't I better to myself? I should be a better person. Well, Tom, you're in good company because I pulled an anecdote that one WWE star, Mick Mankind Foley, suggested in his autobiography, which was called Countdown to Lockdown, that the Little Earthquake song Winter moves him like no other song. And that he played it to hype himself up while preparing for a barbed wire match in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Mick Foley is my favorite person on the planet. Oh my, was he was he mankind? Is that who he was? Mankind. Yes. That's right. oh, yes. Oh he had the sock. Right. Oh, he had the sock and he would Lord. like grab you in the face. Oh, I my. would not play this song to hype me up for anything. I would play this song to hype me up for like, you know, like a warm cocoa and a blanket and a cry or something like that in front of a fire. Good Lord. Oh. Yeah, man. This one this one crushed me. Uh Dream Theater covered this, which I thought mm. was funny because I feel like Dream Theater could really go crazy because that's what they do, uh, instrumentally. Um some other notes I had here. Uh, yeah, the lyrics are ridiculous. Uh, oh, the um, her vocal control. So there's this YouTube channel. This, uh, I don't know the guy's name, but it, it's called Wings of Pegasus, which sounds like a ridiculous heavy metal band. But this guy, you know, analyzes you know uh, musicians and guitar players and vocalists, and he was going over. Tori Amos doing this live. So it's one thing to be in the studio because you can usually compensate for people not being near or too far away from the mic. As you get louder, you should back up, right? If you do that wrong in the studio, you can ride the volume in the, in the control room and fix that. She does this live and her mic control is unbelievable. She goes from whispers like literal whispers where you can hear like the breath. And then she does her chest voice and her head voice all in the span of like 10 seconds. And it sounds fantastic. There's no jumps in the volume. And it, it was just really, really a, a, a great listen uh, for her live stuff. I love, first of all, I love this song generally, but the drama that is built into this song through the swells and volume and there is that when she does the last, not even the last chorus, like it's at like 428 in the song, there's a big build with all the strings and then it cuts out 
and you hear this breath. It's just, <gasps> when you gonna make up your mind? That's, that is the Ooh. line where live, she, yeah, she covers that span of dynamics in a very short time frame and it just, and just nails but it. But she uses her breath like an instrument. Like the inhale is a part of the song. Is a part of the song. It's yeah. So yeah. Good. And then she gets to that really just the intimacy and in that delivery is devastatingly good. So two reasons why the song is good. Number one, the drama. Number two, the strings. The strings are on effing point in this song. They are so good. They start out and there's just that kind of high drone on yeah. like the violins. And then it lets the cello kind of play around a little bit more. And the swells and the complexity of it. I like so Nick DeCaro is the guy who wrote and arranged and conducted the string section for the orchestra for this song. This guy, I had never heard of him before. He had a career dating back to like the 70s. He died like three months after this album was put out. Um, oh, geez. But he was old. He was an old guy at that point. Okay. Um, but man, did he really kill it? Like these strings are amazingly epic and somehow don't overshadow everything else that's going on in the song. They're so complimentary. Yeah, understated. I think that's the trick with strings, too, because they can, they can very easily veer into bombastic, kind of maudlin territory, but you have a song like this with all the ups and downs, the piano swells, the vocal swells. I agree. The production was really, really nice. Yeah. So this song is, for me, 25 seconds short of perfect. She should have ended the song it's like right at 5.14. She says, because things are going to change, my dear. And then she goes on for 25 more seconds playing that. Yeah. Just end the fucking song right there. It would have been flawless. Yeah. But you tacked on 30 seconds, 25, 30 seconds of just filler vamp, and it did not do it any credit at all. It would have been great. Like really fumbled it right at the very end. Minus that, I think that I would have zero complaints about this song. All right. Well, now we're done gushing about the best song in the album. Let's move on to Happy Phantom. And if I die today, I'll be the happy phantom. And I'll go chasing the nuns out in the yard. And I'll run naked through the street without my mask on And I will never need umbrellas in the rain I'll wake up in strawberry fields every day And the atrocities of school I can't forgive The happy phantom has no right to bitch The sun is getting 
one made me pop my head up. It was different than the other tunes. It's a little weirder. Had some different rhythms in it. But honestly, I got tired of it, and I thought the lyrics kind of sucked. The lyrics were dumb. But this was the one that the chorus was running through my head more than any other song, especially after like one or two listens that, woohoo, time is getting closer. That's a good chorus. Generally Mm -hmm. speaking, I don't think that she nails the choruses in a lot of these songs, but this is a good chorus. This is like a, I could see why after writing a song with this kind of pop sensibility, she could still be hanging on to hope that she could be a top 40 songwriter. But even the content matter is like, well, if I'm going to die, I guess I'll be okay because I'll get to torture all the people who are shitty to me in my life. (laughs) (laughs) This song cracked me up because at the one minute and 13 second mark, there is a fake synth violin that is a hate crime. It is terrible when anywhere on this album where, I mean, the song we just listened to, Winter, has a mate, right? We just gushed over the strings and they have this weird, like, it's obviously a keyboard. It's not a real violin. It's just terrible. There's Judy Garland taking Buddha by the hand And then we sell them a little man got up to dance They say Confucius does his crossword with a pen Really, really upset. It sound, yeah, this is a cliche thing, but it really does sound like someone strangling a cat. <laughs> yes, that is the keyboard setting. Cat strangle. It's funny because like this is another one of those ones that is way more layered than it would appear at first. As you start listening to different, like doing multiple listens and trying to pick out different things, you you find different elements in it, and some of them are terrible. Like that violin. You're right. That violin is terrible. I did listen to, there's like the pitched drums that are going on in the chorus, kind of like a boom, boom, boom. Yes. They're very cool. That's a, that's a cool layer. A lot of thought was put into the layers of at least that, maybe not the weird synth violin, but again, that's this where this album shines the most is the little touches that happen in the background that make you, uh, again, pick your head up and realize that it's not just the quickest offering that an artist could have put out. And so I gave her a little bit of shit for taking a lot of time and being sort of perennially late on album delivery for her records, but uh, for her contract. But, you know, if it results in thoughtful touches I'm happy about it. And, you know, listen, I happy sounding melodies about depressing topics. I like them. I've always liked that. That's something that's, that's spoken to me. Yeah. It's, it's playful. I thought the breakdown was weird. What'd you guys think of that, of the bridge where it just like kind of goes crazy and there's like a slide dobro out of nowhere. It's very <laughs> cacophonous. And then it drops out back into that. It's just odd. Yeah, it's it, they're bold choices. A lot of very there bold you go. Choices. Yes, all right. Yeah, they, and again, they, yeah, it was, and that that's what made me kind of like it, just because it was weirder. It was weird pop, and I love weird pop. Yeah, definitely. All righty, so we are going to move on to the next song on our focus list here, which is the song "Tear in Your Hand." Stay together anymore 
Hey guys, you know what we haven't tried yet on this this record we've been producing is applying a a super milk toast '90s rock plug-in to the master bus. Jesus Christ! Can we just make it sound like like ninety percent more collective soul? Oh my god! I was gonna say like I, like I said, this was the song where I said it's a Paula Cole song, maybe like an Amy Mann song. I actually kind of like Amy Mann, but Amy still, Man, Amy Mann's good. Yeah, this is just anybody could have written this song. And the best thing you can say about most of this album is that it is idiosyncratically Tori Amos. This song is not this. This song is just blah, blah, so fucking blah. blah. That, yeah, yeah, this is the one I was talking about. This is the low light for me. So boring. And just on the just on the production. Didn't just nothing to hang my hat on here. Just could have been anything. It could have been produced by an AI 90s bot. Yes. I'll agree with all that. I just had super college coffee shop poetry <laughs> slam. Yep. And other random words strung together. Well, we talked about musical motifs, right? She a lot of her stuff has a musical motif, but that that runs for the whole song, it's boring as fuck. It I was gonna say it's not good. It's not good. Right. It's just so <laughs> middle of the road. And yeah, I respect the songs on this album that I don't like, like aggressively don't like, that she at least took a swing on way more than this. I enjoyed listening to this song more than I enjoyed listening to some of the other songs that I thought were failures, but they were experimental failures, and at least they were going for something. This is not going for anything. This is just dumb and boring. Here, here. <laughs> Apparently, she she name checks Neil Gaiman. Gaiman, I don't know. I don't read his fucking books. In this song, where he said, "If you need me, <laughs> me and Neil will be hanging out with the Dream King." <laughs> yeah, I heard she was friends with him, and he's a he's a real internet favorite. So we might have just isolated half of our audience there. Yeah, listen, I read nerdy-ass books. I just don't read his nerdy-ass books, all right? But apparently, um, that's how they became friends. She name-checked him, and he was also a fan of hers and had made a character in The Sandman that was based on her called Delirium. Like, before they even met, he was sort of, mm. like, basing a character on her. You're seeing blank stares on this call here, so I don't think any I, of us have read creepy. that one. But, <laughs> and, uh, well, but it's I, a, I do know that Netflix series But, you know, they, he's, you know, Neil Gaiman is married to Amanda Palmer, the Dresden Dolls. I do Dolls. know that, yes. Yeah, yeah, she's another weird weirdo musician. I actually, I think Dresden Dolls were pretty fucking awesome. I really, I really, I don't necessarily like Amanda Palmer's solo stuff, but Dresden Dolls with her and that drummer, that drummer was really good. They did a really kick-ass version of War Pigs. There's like a live version of them doing War Pigs around. That's pretty fucking I meant weird as a total compliment. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know their catalog super well, but I, I dig her aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's pretty cool. This song's not pretty cool though. This song sucks. Trash. there's like about 40 seconds of this song from like two minutes to two minutes and 40 seconds. That's good, but it's really only good because it's a break from the rest of the song and it goes back into it. Like in another song, it would be a relatively unremarkable part of the song, but I was just, I just wanted a break from that kind of constant. Like it almost felt like there was just one note holding the entire time. Like just holding throughout the entire song. I just wanted to end uh, Tori Amos, I think, took the cue of be more yourself and be more experimental and be more uh, bold because I 
I'm not super familiar with Under the Pink, but I don't believe that there's a super middle-of-the-road bullshit song like this on Under the Pink, which was her next album, which is a pretty good fucking album from what I recall. Alrighty, we are we're going long tonight, folks, so we are going to jump into the last song on the album, the last song we're going to talk about, the title track of the album, Little Earthquakes. Yeah, so this is actually what made me write down that the when she harmonizes with herself, I thought it sounded quite angelic. I wrote down the word chrome. This is in the pre-chorus, right before they land on the chorus, where she's hitting with mm-hmm. herself. And it's two lead singer voices, I agree. But they're coming at you real strong. It almost sounded like like heavy metal. I agree. This Bruce song, Dickinson harmonizing exactly, with himself. Yeah! Exactly. Yeah. 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 This song is pretty cool. Um when she made that comment about how like I had to come to grips with the fact that I was never going to be a top 40 songwriter, like this is the song that she's talking about wanting to write that is never going to be a top 40 hit. But it's cool. I, I do think that this song is cool. I love the fretless bass on this song. The imprecision of the fretless bass lends to this ethereal bed that is going on for this song which uh, I thought was really cool. But once again, what the fuck is up with the fucking Transylvania men's choir Thank background you. vocals? What Thank the hell you. is going on here? Are you talking about the one the 150 moment Give where she pretends no, to I'm be British? About, I'm talking about the vampires till dawn no, no, or no. something like that. I'm talking about that different? The, the end of the song. It's like, oh. give me life, give me pain, give me my soul. And you got the like four dudes going, give me life, well, give I think, me pain. I think that's pitch shifted. I don't think oh, it's God men with deep it. voices. Because you can tell when they pitch shift because the singer sounds drunk. Is just the, there's a there's something that happens sure. with the human voice when you just sing low versus taking a voice and lowering it. You know what, Adam? You are fucking right. There is nobody else listed as having backup vocals on this track except for her. No, I I, I buy that. The pitch shift is, you got to use that real sparingly. This is not good. Me and Tom put that on a track one time, but it was to sound monstrous. It was literally to sound (laughs) like Gozer. To sound like an evil guy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
This, that that was like jarring to me. I was like, oh, what the fuck is she doing here? This does not sound. <laughs> I think good. Uh, like Trey and Fish did that on Shock Dust Torture too, right? That's like pitched down yes. a smidge, yeah. yeah, for the whole song. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. I also have a note that uh, right at three minutes and twenty five seconds, there's a guitar tone that would not be out of place on a Nine Inch Nails album. Like it totally would have worked on like a metal album or something. She references Nine Inch Nails too, right? Was she, she buddies does. with Trent Reznor? I don't think that she was buddies with Trent Reznor that I was able to find out about. But yeah, what's in that? I think that might be in, is that in Precious Things? What the fuck song is that in? She talks about like uh, all these girls with their Nine Inch Nails and their little demi. Basically, she's talking about how like shitty teenage girls are to each other, which yeah, that story checks out. <laughs> the worst people in the universe. Yes. My other, my only other note here was that I feel like the engineer or the producer should have told her to work on her pronunciation of the word pieces because I could have sworn she was saying, doesn't take much to rip us into penises. <laughs> just, wow. just the way I did she says that. it and the way she breathes in pieces. Adam, that's the, that's um, the patriarchy talking. It is. <laughs> Yeah. Get yeah, out no, of your phallocentric no worldview, Adam. Come on. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, there you have it, everyone. Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes. You have heard our in-depth opinions. Now let's hear our overarching take from the week. Does this album belong on the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die? Throwing it over first to Rob. Well, I'll be honest, I came in to the call today thinking it was a definite no for me. I didn't really have the best week, even though the music did grow on me and I liked some things about it. But after all the stories of her being a child prodigy and our discussion of the musical context in which she arose, came out with this record, and you know our discussion of the production, uh, it's a squeaker, but I'm going to say yes. Give it a listen. There's some nuance here. There's more than I expected. I'm glad we talked about it. I enjoyed it more for having talked about it with y'all. But yeah, I'll give it a yes. Alrighty. That's a surprise vote from Rob. Adam, what do you got? Yeah, this was a rough week for me as well. 10 to 12 listens of this was was definitely getting difficult near the end. It did grow on me similarly to how it grew on Rob. I think that in the Alanis Morissette episode that we did... Uh, I think Tom actually was you who said that people praise Alanis as the uh, the inventor or kind of the the initiator of this style of female fronted singer songwriter thing of the '90s. But you you piped up that well, what about Tori Amos? And the truth is, I had never listened to Tori Amos. I, I don't even know if I had heard one song by her. So I'm glad I listened to this album, and I'm going to say yes, because I think she impacted a lot of stuff downstream. So there's my my surprise vote. I really thought I was coming into this saying no about an hour and a half ago. So. Oh, all righty. Glad I've changed some hearts and minds here, I guess. Um, I'm going to give this a yes, too, and I also will reference that Alanis Morissette uh, episode where I, I believe one of the comments was this album launched a thousand A&R men out into the world to try to find the next Alanis Morissette. And I do think that Tori Amos had a an impact on the musical scene in general and gave more 
of a spotlight on some of those voices that would otherwise have not been heard. Um, if maybe not if she wasn't the forerunner, but if somebody had to be the forerunner to get that out there. And so I'm going to give her a lot of credit for that. And also I'll just go ahead and say like, I didn't like listening to this album 10 times. I really liked listening to this album one time. The fact that it had the ability to change my emotions in such a way that it got me feeling like there's some albums that on repeat listens. It's just oppressive because I'm just like, I don't want to fucking listen to this. It's boring and it sucks and I can't stand it. This was like, I'm just tired of being sad. I don't want to listen to this fucking sad music anymore. <laughs> and the fact that it could actually do something to my emotions means that there is you know, power in the arts. And so I'm going to give her a yes. And I'm very shocked. We got a three for three on Tori Amos's little earthquakes. Congratulations, Tori. You are on the list. Three mid forties. White guys think that your album is worthwhile. (laughs) Validation finally for your career. Well, do you think we got it right? Do you think we got it wrong? We would love to hear from you. 1001 album complaints at gmail.com. 1001 album complaints at gmail.com is the way that you can let us know. Write in. Tell us where you're writing from. Tell us what you liked. Tell us what you didn't like. Correct some mistakes that we made. I'm sure we did make some. Uh, I did the research this week, and uh, I'm not good at it. So there's probably (laughs) some things that I got wrong. If you guys uh, want to go ahead and tell a friend about this podcast, we would love that. I think that spreading it word of mouth is a great way to go. Leave us a review. We're on all of the different platforms for podcasts, even on Audible, which is crazy to me that Audible does podcasts, but good on you, Audible. Uh, Leave us a review there. I think we have two reviews, and one of them is bad, and it's about a different podcast than us. Uh, Yeah, we got to fix that, guys. (laughs) We got to fix that. Mobilize, listeners. Give give us at least like three good Audible reviews to drown out this one guy who thinks that we talk shit on a Jefferson Starship album when we totally did not. And Everyone I do like knows. Rush, but certainly not we my favorite. Love band. Jefferson Starship. Love the Stars. Love the J Star. Um, <laughs> uh, if you uh, also want to go on our Instagram page, the Chop Unlimited, uh, a lot of great stuff about not only the podcast but other musical endeavors that we're engaging in. We would love to hear that. The only thing left for us to do this week is to spin that wheel and find out what we are going to be listening to next week. I have the Albinator here. It is done crying in the corner, and it is ready to move on to the next album. (laughs) So without any further ado, next week we will be listening to... I don't know this album, but I have to assume it's happier than this than Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes. I mean, you could fill in the blank with any album on that, but <laughs> that's The Way of the World by Earth, Wind, and Fire. So fuck yeah, bring it back to the 70s. Oh, nice. all right. Excited for that. You know, I, I don't think I've ever listened to an Earth, Wind, and Fire album start to finish. I mean, I know all the hits like all of us do, but I don't know that I've ever... I neither. I know. Yeah, yeah. Burn through an entire album. To dig. Yeah, definitely some some nice harmonies on this bad boy, I assume. Yeah. Is Earth, Wind, and Fire the band where their bass player was credited with creating slap bass, basically, in like uh, popular music? I think that, uh, I think this know. might be the band. I don't know either, but we will find out next week because Rob's doing the research and he is way better at it than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. You got your homework assignment for next week. We know what we're going to be listening to. We know what we're going to be talking about. Thank you for sticking around with us until the bittersweet end of this podcast. Until next week, I have been Tom. I'm Rob. And I'm Adam. Uh, 
When you're gonna make up your boots. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's staying on the tape.